Welcome once again to Center Left Radio, the progressive voice of hope, politics, and jazz. My name is Richard Gazer, and as always, I am pleased and I'm honored to be your host and your commentator for another of our commentary shows. One of the shows that we have on air, online, 24-7, probably close to 365, I would imagine. Uh, And it's either, you'll find it in either of two major locations, both of which can be explored or accessed through one particular link, one uh, one, uh, link that takes you to our homepage, www.centerlefttalkradio, one word, centerlefttalkradio.com. You go there. And uh, the first link uh, is to our pod, uh, to our, uh, to our, to basically our RSS feed, our uh, our podcast uh, listing. The first show on that podcast listing will also be uh, available as what we call a radio loop. A radio loop being nothing more than what the word says. Well, what does that word mean? I don't know what that means. Well, here's what, it, here's what we would hope that it says, and here's what it, here's what it means, at least anyway. It means that there is a version of the show you're listening to right now playing on a separate computer here in the studio and running in a loop. It is running on software that plays it again and again and again. And that uh, version of the show is being, uh, through the miracle of the Ethernet and and wirelessness and Wi-Fi and everything else, uh, it is being communicated to a modem, which happens to be located here in this room also. And that modem, in turn, by whatever other miracles one cares to list or create in the process, is linked to to the rest of the planet, to servers somewhere, in possibly somewhere in the desert. I've seen shows about where servers are located, these huge, massive banks of servers. Um, I saw one show somewhere that said that they were located in some former underground nuclear bunker someplace uh, out in the in the prairie lands of America. But they exist, uh, these huge, huge bands of servers, and uh, somehow, some way, whatever it is we're doing here winds up being communicated to some particular spot on some particular server. That's my understanding of how it's done. And it, in turn, knows to push it outward to the planet. It joins this stream of material that we know as the World Wide Web, as the Internet. I still have trouble kind of distinguishing the one from the other. There used to be a... I, I, had, a, I had a very good friend who, who used to be able to explain to me what the difference was between the Internet and the World Wide Web. Uh, uh, damned if I can understand or remember what the differentiation was, but there was at some point, uh, and I think it might have had more historical significance than anything else. At this point, pretty much it's where everything is that we go to get when we click on web-enabled devices, one way or the other. 
we're out there. So find us at www.centerlefttalkradio, one word, centerlefttalkradio.com. Pick up either our podcast feed or our radio loop when you arrive there. Or you can also pick up our podcast, the, the show you're listening to right now, anywhere you get your podcasts. If that is how you're getting us, go to Center Left radio that's what you'll find you don't have to go to the link if you if you found if you got to the link we all you'd pick us up pick up the podcast right there already go through any other podcast source other than the one that we have up on our website and look for center left radio there that was a that was a nice little summation of accessibility um i have been thinking a good deal of late about things of a repetitive nature. I, I, suppose, I suppose ritual would be the best term to use. It, it should be no secret to anyone who's been alive for any length of time. I mean, you could be young, you could be old, but if you're sentient, if, you, if you're aware of your own existence, sufficiently aware of it, part of the awareness involves a recognition of our use of ritual, doing things with meaning again and again, or, or using a process a repeated process, uh, a, a repetition of elements within a certain series of acts, or an, you know, you, you, I could refine this down to, to beyond the point that I think I need to refine it. Doing the same thing over and over again because it means something. We do things. We, we have rituals. We normally think of ritual within, within a religious environment, but, but that's only one of the many environments within which we perform rituals. Much of our day, much of the activity, much of the way we sleep, get up in the morning, what we do to get ready to prepare for the day, what we do during the day is rooted in or is in fact part of a ritual. People talk about the ritual of going to work back in the day when everybody was commuting one way or the other. There was the ritual of travel. There was the ritual of what you did when you got to the office, how you took care of lunch, what you did when, who you called, uh, what, how you dealt with the, this particular uh, fellow employee, on and on and on and on. Rituals that structured our lives and gave some kind of meaning to them. And I, and I was thinking about those rituals in my own life uh, quite a bit lately, just how I have used ritual as a means of not, not just structuring, not just knowing, okay, this is what comes next, this is what I have to do next, but, but, giving, but giving some kind of significance and, and, some, and some, some kind of perspective to stuff generally. Um, I, I was, again, the idea to talk about this even this morning was really a function of a feeling that I've been having lately about trying to 
put things into some kind of context. The, the image that I had that got me sort of on this vector for today um, comes from recent, recent, uh, in the last 15 years, visits to the American Museum of Natural History. Uh, for a long time, uh, what had been the Hayden Planetarium, the ancient Hayden Planetarium with the old hall of planets as you walked in, this, the squat circular, the squat domed circular building uh, that had the planetarium in it, uh, it, it really a, a, a sort of art deco gem uh, in the memories and minds of New Yorkers who've been here for a certain amount of time, people of a certain age. I have always, I always have this, when I try to think back on the old Hayden Planetarium building, the color, a deep, deep, dark green image. That's always the sort of the feeling. I feel a forest green and I always feel winter when I think of the old Hayden Planetarium at the American Museum of Natural History, or as we say in New York, the, the Museum of Natural History Day, you know, or something along those lines. The, what changed after they knocked down the old museum and the Rose Center, as it's called, R-O-S-E, the Rose Center, the people who, who basically gave the major grant for this, and it's, a, it's this huge glass box with a huge sphere uh, seemingly suspended in the middle of it. And that sphere, the upper part of the sphere, is in essence the new, well, not so, so new now, but pretty new, planetarium. And the lower part of the sphere, actually, it's probably more like two-thirds, one-third, but the lower part of the sphere same sphere as the planetarium is, the bottom of it obviously is heavily insulated sound-wise because they run two separate shows simultaneously within the sphere. And, and the show in the bottom sphere uh, is, is, a, is a presentation, let's call it. It's about, I, I don't know, it doesn't run more than four minutes. I think that's what it is. It's, it's narrated by Liam Nielsen, Nielsen, uh, Liam Neeson, Liam, oh my goodness, the actor, okay. Uh, and and uh, it's called The Big Bang. Now, they could be running anything upstairs in the main planetarium. And, and, I had, and I hadn't been to the main planetarium in quite some time. I renewed my membership to the Museum of Natural History. I've been a member for decades. I just feel I'm supposed to be, and I need to be. I, I can't explain it any more than that. Uh, it's part of, it's in me. It's in what I'm supposed to be, just like I'm a member of, of uh, the classical music station here, uh, WQXR out of New York, and it was streamed all over the world. Um, I'm supposed to be. This is who I am. This is part of what I do. Uh, I was a member of BGO, WBGO, the jazz station here, and the only full-time jazz station here in the New York area. Somehow, I let that membership lapse a bit, but, but I, I stay with classical radio and I stay with uh, the, uh, the Museum of Natural History. My wife uh, fills in the blanks on the other side with the local PBS stations, uh, but that's kind of what we do. It's, it's, it defines 
who we are. It's, it's an obligation, and it's, it's ritualistic in, in, in that sense. As I say, as I renewed my membership, I had the opportunity to go uh, to a show, to one of the planetarium shows. And, and, and the great joy of going to the planetarium throughout my life, literally, has been to see this magnificent Zeiss projector. Does anyone remember what a Zeiss projector is? The, the, the Zeiss projector was this magnificent uh, piece of equipment, two spheres with what seemed to be an infinite number of lenses sticking out of them. So it, it, it would be like a, a cartoonish representation of the moon, but two moons, one on each end of a, of a frame that supported these two pieces. And the way it worked at the beginning of a planetarium show was that there would be uh, the, everybody would seat, be seated. Remember, you're, you're in a planetarium, but it's a hemisphere, mostly, you know, a little more than a hemisphere in this particular case. But in any event, you're sitting down and you're lining all the walls behind you. And the way it would work back in the day was, the Zeiss projector, once the lights were turned down, the Zeiss projector would literally, the floor would literally open, and this magnificent, huge creature of a thing, probably something like 12 feet long or longer, with these two balls, and the two spheres had to at least be four or five feet in diameter, with all these lenses, projecting lenses, this would literally rise out of the floor. And it was the most magic, wonderful thing you can imagine. And then the show would begin. And the show was conducted by a live person. There is a booth. There's a booth at, at, towards the, en the main entrance into the planetarium. And at that booth are a whole series of controls. To this day, you can still do... I, I, when I was there the other day, I watched this. I Just to verify this was still what it was. But you could... A, a person could do a live show. In other words, narrate an entire sky show, as they used to call them, from this booth. And, and back in the day, they would have these, uh, you would have a, uh, a flashlight with an arrow on it, and you'd be pointing to this star in the, in the sky. And then, and then by pushing a button, uh, the Zeiss projector would make some planet rise in the sky, or, or a new scene would appear, and it was all programmed into what whatever was passed as a computer in those days. I'm going all the way back into the, into the 50s and 60s here. Mostly, I guess, the 60s would be when I would have started going. And, and, and just the, the, the sheer wonder of being part of this entire process. That, that there was so much beyond who I was and where I was. I was elevated. I was, my perspective was incredibly magnified to a degree that's, that's hard to describe. I, I could see so far beyond 
where I was. It was the magic of, well, they speak of the magic of cinema, the suspension of belief in, in all sorts of, of productions that we go to, the theater, movies, that sort of thing. For me, the planetarium was always that on steroids. It was that much more all the time. Well, the show I went to the other day, this is literally within the last week, I think, I might have done this. And again, you're, we're once, you're once again in a position to be able to go to the museum. You, As a member, there's a separate entranceway that they have below the main entrance. Uh, what was the main entrance on, uh, well, what still is the main entrance uh, on Central Park West at, I guess, about, what would it be, 80th Street? Uh, where the statue of Teddy Roosevelt on a horse uh, being tended by almost naked Native Americans or maybe perhaps uh, what, what, whatever the, he encountered or whoever he encountered in Panama when he was building the, Panamanian, the Panama Canal. But of course, they're walking next to him and he's, he's elevated high on a horse. Finally, someone got it into their head that the imagery might not have been exactly in line with what we should be or what people ought to be... Uh, envisioning as an appropriate statement about non-white people, even if it was over a hundred years ago. And that famous statue of Teddy Roosevelt uh, is no longer in front of the museum. There's just a big area that it's all covered up right now. I don't know what they're going to do with it eventually. They still have the story of Teddy Roosevelt as you come in, and then there's the rotunda with everything uh, uh, all about Teddy Roosevelt and quotes and everything. He was a hell of a great guy. He's, I talk about him on this show constantly. He was the guy who gave us progressivism, or at least brought that into the lexicon, the idea that you have to, you know, you, you have to basically come to compromise some somehow in order to have a functional democracy. But um, essentially, getting back to the entire planetarium notion, this show was what gave me this greater perspective on everything. And there was a ritual that took you to space. It was that, that period of darkness, then the voice of the narrator, then the Zeiss projector coming out of the ground, and just the otherness of it, seeing everything from a position and a perspective that made so much of the, uh, the, the hyper detail with which we live less relevant, I suppose, but it got subsumed in a much bigger picture. And it, was, it wasn't a regular ritual by any stretch of the imagination, but probably one of the most enjoyable rituals of my life, and I would look forward to it. I could remember this ritual of the Zeiss projector rising out of the floor. Now, I, the, 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 um, the presentation I went to the other day <laughs> there was no Zeiss projector. Uh, there's a place, and I looked for it, there's a place on the floor where I assume that uh, if, if were it necessary, the Zeiss projector could be pulled out of the floor. I want to believe there's still a Zeiss projector underneath the floor. 
but there were spectacular uh, effects being done on the ceiling, on uh, you know, over the dome, and all of the planets, and and what's crashing and smashing and flying and doing it in all sorts of ways. All of this is being done by uh, by cameras that are sitting around the rim of the planetarium, and they're so well hidden that you don't e you can't even see the cameras. They're virtually hidden from sight underneath a lip that surrounds the entire uh, circumference of the planetarium. So so that part of the um, that 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 level of connection, the analog sense of it, even that is was gone from this show. And of course, the show that I saw was a completely pre-recorded event from start to finish. Somebody the, hit a button, the lights go down, the voice comes up, the show plays, it's over, we all leave. What was the same, fortunately, was for all the kids who were in there and the oohs and the ahs and the very little kids crying because they were afraid of being in the dark and suddenly realizing that there was no up or down when you're looking that far in the sky, that there's no place to put your feet when you're floating that high above the earth, that you're basically in a place in your mind as much as a place in space. You are in a place in your heart and spirit. You are in a place in your imagination. And if you're not prepared for it, if you're thoroughly grounded in your whole life and as little kids are because of how their lives are structured. It's hard to make the transition, the instantaneous transition to being somewhere beyond it. You don't need that sense as a little kid to be that far outside of your sphere of normal reference. If anything, you want things that are closer and more tangible. And that's why little kids cry inside the planetarium. At least that's what I imagine the situation to be. I didn't cry. I, I, I actually may have been tearing up slightly just because of the memory of the feelings. Uh, not, not quite with the same punch as if the Zeiss projector had come up. Uh, but afterwards, I, I made a point of going, and I, well, well, throughout the show, uh, the, 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 throughout the, the planetarium show, uh, which probably ran somewhere around a half hour, maybe if it ran that much, you know. Uh, there's just so much time you could put into one of those things. I was listening very carefully, because remember, right below us, right below where you are in the planetarium, there is what I described earlier, the Big Bang Theater. And the Big Bang Theater is as it sounds. Now, now remember, when you're in the planetarium upstairs, you're looking at the top of the dome. That's the whole point of a planetarium. It's a, it's a semicircle, or it's a hemisphere, half of a, of, of a sphere, or even a little more than a half a sphere if you took the whole room into account. And in there, or on the ceiling, is where all the projection is taking place. Well, downstairs, the bottom half of that sphere, well, that's, that's curved too. So, you know, the people who created this had this brilliant idea. Well, let's use the bottom half as well. But whereas you would have to look up to see the show if you're in the upstairs, you look 
where would you look? You'd have to look down. So what they did downstairs is a smaller area, much smaller area. It's the, you know, imagine you're in a, you're in a, you're inside a sphere and you're going deeper and deeper and deeper. And the deeper you go, the circumference of that sphere, it's no longer the circumference, but, but if you, if you sliced a ring through, if you keep slicing, taking slices of that sphere as you go deeper and deeper, well, the, the, the remaining area is smaller and smaller until you basically have a, a softly curved bowl that you're looking down into. Well, that's kind of what they have downstairs. You walk into a room, the ceiling of the room is a flat, a flat area, and I gather the amount of insulation, sound insulation, between this room and the upper show, the upper planetarium, is, is unbelievable because there are those incredibly loud noises that are produced as part of the Big Bang Show, as it's called. I mean, it is loud. And I was consciously listening for those noises while I was uh, in the main planetarium show about a week ago. Never. At, at, at the quietest moments uh, of the show where there's just the narrator speaking or you just have, just the lights are going and I'm listening, I'm, I'm, I'm looking, I, I want to feel vibration, I want some indication that there's this incredible show that I know, that I've seen many times. I want to know that it's happening under my feet and I know it is. I know it repeats every four minutes and I know that it'll repeat at least five times or more while I'm upstairs in that planetarium uh, show, minus the Zeiss projector. But never, never once was I aware of the other show down there. A, a, a tribute to the genius of the people who put this whole thing together. But as I say, still I had the urge, this is ritual, I, I had to go and see the Big Bang Theater show. And so after, after attending the planetarium show, which was good, but it, I, I sometimes wish I was seven years old again to see it. Uh, I try becoming as a seven-year-old in my mind, and it works to an extent. But what seems to work ritualistically more for me is the Big Bang Theater. So you, you, you walk out of the planetarium, you, you walk out of the doors, and you have to kind of really work your way around to get to the lower level. It's on, it's on a different floor of the museum. I mean, you, you access it from a different floor. It, it'd be hard to describe this. It's a, it's, it's a suspended sphere with, with walkways extending into the main building of the museum, and those are the ways in which you get from the upper to the lower sphere. It gets kind of complicated, but once you've found your way, you're there, and you're standing on a line, and you you're simply waiting to walk into the Big Bang Theater, as it were. And the doors open and some person lets you in and you go stand around a railing. It's a railing. And over the railing, looking down, is the bottom of the planetarium. It's the lower part. Remember, you can't look up. up. Up is above you, and that's the main room. Here is the bottom part, what, what you normally would not expect to even exist. But if you have a sphere extend, floating in space, well, it makes sense to have an upper and a lower uh, projection capability. 
And as you walk in, there is this projected on projected on, in front of you, below you, on the screen. Again, you can stand anywhere around a circle with, uh, with railing, looking over. And looking down now, there is Manhattan, really New York City, but focused on Manhattan Island. And there's soft music in the background. And you're kind of getting yourself adjusted to the dark lights, but looking down into the bottom of the bowl, as it were. And finally, uh, someone comes in and announces how we're about to do a show. And uh, blah, 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 please no fast photography, uh, no, no use of cell phones, blah, 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 blah. Uh, at, at the show, please wait till the show is over before you attempt to exit, blah, blah. And then a button is pushed, and it all starts. And again, it's, it's all pre-recorded. But the sound and everything about it is that much more intense. It's a smaller area. And what it does is it begins with the notion of going back in time. And the visual experience is to take you from this initial view of Manhattan Island. I would say you're looking at it from... Oh, it's certainly higher than you would be if you were flying in to LaGuardia or to or to Kennedy uh, or to you know JFK or or any of the local airports. You're further up. It's more like you're more like at fifty thousand feet or thirty-five thousand flying over it. You're not going to land from this view. But as it begins to pull away, the notion is this. This is what the this is what the narration. This is what Liam Neeson is saying. The further we pull away and the, and the higher we go and the more distance that we put between ourselves and the earth, the more time there is between what we see and when we see it. You know, now we get to a certain altitude. Now there's a, there's a late second, let's call it. Then there's a, here's how, here's how things look one light minute away. One, the distance that it would take light to travel, or, or the distance light travels in a minute. Well, that's, that's what you're looking at right now. Imagine the earth is still over there, but here is now the huge perspective around you. And this keeps going and going and going. Here we are now, one light minute, one light hour, one light, a, a, a thousand light years. A bit, and finally, all the way back to 13.7 or 8 billion years ago. The number keeps shifting around uh, depending on whose theoretical model, uh, and in some cases more and more practical models, testable models, uh, we are working with. We reach the point where there was what we assume, what we have to assume, was a bang or where, a, where an infinitesimal speck of nothing became everything that we know around us now. And, 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 and that's, that's a hard one to, to get into our heads. Whenever I've heard the words Big Bang, I've always envisioned... <sighs> You think of an explosion, okay? Is, is, isn't that what you think of with a Big Bang? You, you, you imagine 
imagine uh, sort of a, it's a television show or a movie or something, and, and, and suddenly a car explodes, or, or you're looking at pictures of, uh, from the 1940s, you're looking at the explosion of the bomb over Hiroshima or Nagasaki, other horrible events in our history. And you see this huge cloud, there's a, there's a flash and an explosion and there's a cloud going up. And, and, the, and the Big Bang is supposedly is, I guess when you think of the bang, that's the equivalent thing. And what we've been told and what, what, what physics bears out, what the only conclusion we can reach because of the expansion of the universe in which we live, which is all measurable and there are all these elements of, you know, dark energy, dark matter, all these other factors that we're learning about that go into this. The only conclusion we can reach is that, is that from the point where everything started, and, and to figure out that there was a point where everything started, you simply run, you run, the, you run the camera backwards. You look at where everything is now and you realize that things are still moving outward. Well, go backwards. And you finally come down to a point where everything is concentrated in a single speck. But we're within that speck. That's another thing that's so hard to conceive of, that we're within that which is infinitesimally small, or the stuff that will be us is within there. So it's not like we can look, at, just looking at it from the outside means nothing. It's the opposite of what it is. To, to, to put it somewhere suggests that there was somewhere else when this infinitesimal speck came into being. And then, I don't know, maybe there was an explosion, we don't know, probably. But it began to, very shortly after its existence was established from wherever it came, people are more and more beginning to believe that it may very well have come from another universe. It begins, it, we, everything that there is, begins to expand. Now, if you think of a bomb going off, a big bang, a crash, well, there's a certain amount of expansion. The energy from that crash, that bang, throws things outward. But, but for how long? I mean, imagine the biggest explosion you can imagine. Imagine, imagine uh, uh, you know, an atomic bomb, I suppose, or imagine, or imagine an asteroid hitting Earth, which, of course, you can imagine if you watch, in, or back in the, in the 90s when they had Deep Impact and all those other films that were coming out, you know, imagining a, a asteroid impacts and, you know, Earth-ending or life-canceling life events. Imagine the largest explosion that could come from any of that. Well, what has to happen after the so-called Big Bang in order for us to exist is that the effects of whatever happens at the very, very start of the, the very first second where, this, where everything that is comes into existence 
and we still don't have any good mathematical or even theoretical models. But, uh, this is where this is where God uh, gets moved into place. But but God not being a magician, it would be it would be incumbent on a God to operate under something other than purely miraculous mechanisms in order to make things operate because everything else is quite discernible. So how did the very beginnings, well, we, I, that's a whole other area to get into. But now you have this ongoing expansion and the force of whatever started it all in any other set of circumstances has long, long dissipated. How long do the effects of a big blast continue on for? If you, if you, if you, if you really had tons of, of dynamite and you boom, blew up a mountain or something, how long and how far would the debris continue? How long would a volcano keep going. Well, sometimes it can go miles in the air. It could throw ash for, for, for thousands of miles, but eventually it all settles down. How long might it, all that process, I, the longest process where the force of it is still uh, being driven by the initial energy of the explosion, in most situations, uh, you know, a, a few seconds. In the case of a volcano, it could be a few days. It could be a week, I, I, I imagine, the, the main force of it. But 13.8 billion years, and the force is still being felt, and the universe is still expanding. No, more than that. About 5 billion years ago, the rate of the expansion began to speed up, that, that some energy, something else kicked in, and it's going faster and further. And, and, and again, I, and I'm looking at this show, I'm, I'm downstairs in the museum again, and I'm looking at the Big Bang Theater, and I'm watching the story of all this, and understanding realizing, recognizing that the further away you go in time and distance, the greater your perspective becomes on where you've been. And stuff which, which seemed to be everything that you could possibly imagine at a given moment in time, when, when, when your perspective is shut down to a day or a week or a month, and it's, and it's trapped in, uh, let's say, uh, the politics of a given country or of a given season or of a, of a given set of parties, if you pull back enough, and there's always a place to pull back to, because we live in, a, in an environment that has a 13.8 billion year lifespan and going about it. There's, there's that much to who we are and where we've been. When you, when you go into and allow yourself to become part of this expanded period, this, 
this universe beyond earth, beyond anything that can be happening here at a given moment, when you, when you recognize the vastness that we are all part and parcel of, it, it takes some of the sting of the worst of what we see of ourselves. It, it, it takes it away. It, it lessens it. It softens the blow. The humility of recognizing, the humbling experience of realizing how big a thing we're part of, of recognizing how we are all truly, as Sagan, as Carl Sagan put it, we are all star stuff. Of recognizing that as we go back in time and distance, that the very composition of our bodies doesn't happen unless gigantic stars billions of years ago are created from the hydrogen and helium, which is all there was at that time, live out their lives, compressed down by, by sheer gravity, which we still don't understand, pull together, that they heat up, heat up, heat up, heat up, and over time, the fuel, the hydrogen and helium fuel begins to burn down. They begin to collapse in on themselves. There's a massive explosion, at which point every other element other than the heavier element, everything other than hydrogen and helium, which is all there was up to that point, is created. Everything else, steel, uh, nickel, uh, uh, magnesium, uh, gold, uh, you name it. The stuff that our bodies are made of doesn't exist until stars explode billions and billions of years ago. And that stuff gets blown out into interstellar space, ultimately congeals in other areas of space, and the planets that come from that are basically composed of those interstellar materials that only exist when stars first blow up billions and billions of years ago. We are, as Sagan said, star stuff. Every last one of us. Every last bit of what is out there. Everything that we... Just look around you, wherever you are listening to this show right now. Look at, are you in a car? Are you, are you sitting at home? Are, do you have a, a set of headphones on? Are you working somewhere? Are you, are you in your own studio? Are you, however you're listening to center-left radio. Look around you. Anything you can touch or see that is manufactured in any way, shape, or form. A road, uh, the tar, uh, the, 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 uh, the, the, the car you're in, the clothing you're wearing. Look at your hand, look at your bodies, look at, every, look at the elements in there. Other than pure hydrogen and helium, of which there isn't a whole hell of a lot in our bodies in pure form, everything else is combined elements that are the result of stars exploding. 
makes perfect sense. We, we, we know this scientifically. And it takes huge amounts of time for all of these elements to come into play. What is now the Earth is something that was first cooking around the sun that we that we first that we have now was first heating up about four and a half billion years ago. We can't imagine times like that. And 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 perhaps for, for functioning purposes, it's better that we're not able to consider those things regularly. It, it would become too distracting. We are, we are, although we are intellectual beings and capable of imagining all this and we can, we can envision our own place in the universe, we have a, we have a sense of self, our, our tendency, our, our normal function is not to live in a const, with a constant awareness of where we are in a 13.8 billion year process from the very first moment that whatever it was that started, that still defies all laws of physics, when it came into existence from wherever it came, assuming that some deus ex machina was not doing parlor tricks that day and just thought they'd do something kind of wacky. No, it came from somewhere. We'll figure it out eventually. It'll help us uh, basically get to light speed and moving at light speed because we will. We have to. We have no chance. And as we, as we encounter other intelligent life forms, we will begin to understand all of this stuff. It's that Big Bang uh, theater story that, that stays with me constantly. And, and any time I'm feeling kind of down about what's going on around me, any and it's not, it, these days it is an exceptionally easy thing to do. To, to look at the antipathy, the anger, the, the, the tribalization that seems to have overtaken our country and much of the world, the, the absolute frozen aspect of our politics, our incapacity to deal with just simple gun regulation after people are being killed again and again, and, 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 when, and, and that we're just trapped in this, in this conflict a conflict mindset with people just dead set against one another and scared to death of giving an inch because there is this constant failure, there's this constant sense among a lot of people, and I find this on the right quite a bit, that if we give anything, and anything means giving in even to things that might be good for me, but if it's something the other side wants, if it's even if I want it too, if I give into it, and if it makes you happy, and if it works even for both of us, that's bad. Because I can't do anything to help you because it's a winner-take-all. We're in a zero-sum environment here. And, and, if, and if, I allow, if I allow you to win any points in this game, my existence may be jeopardized. That, that's, that's the insanity that we seem to be living in right now. And it's, it's frightening. And the way out of it for me, the way to, 
to, to, to feel past it, to not be depressed by it. As you can imagine being doing this show, Center Left Radio, it's, it, so much of what we do here is focused on the politics of a given moment. What are we doing today? No, we're, we're going somewhere else. <coughs> Excuse me. We are, we are in the Big Bang Theater. We are going back. We are going back billions of years in time and space. And we are formulating the ultimate perspective. We are remembering where we all come from inevitably and inexorably. We are understanding that there is always something much bigger than the immediate. And that works in two directions, that the future, therefore, when the future happens, it will be looking back at this moment and saying, oh, it was part of this larger thing. If you've lived long enough, you know this already, but it's so hard to recognize when you're in an ugly time. There was an ugly time when I was a little kid. We were, we were afraid the Russians were going to bomb us. We were constantly afraid of, of nuclear annihilation, or we were made to feel that way. Now we have, we have a, uh, an unfortunately unstable person who has been injected into our political dialogue, a person who will do anything for their own personal power, and who has been able to tap into the fear and paranoia and grievance of a group of people who always had it bubbling just below the surface anyway, and who now feel openly and outwardly that if they, that they're so on the verge of extinction as a group that giving in anything is basically a a formula for their own extinction or pushing their own extinction. This is Trump and, and how he basically has infected what was already well underway. And then the fear that he has instilled and how... But you see, all of this will pass. And we have to imagine, just as we can envision the past and what it gave us, and how we became what we are. We have to imagine the future. There is hope in both directions. The hope of what we've become, by, by going to the worst of where we've been, that we can remember, some of us in our own lifetimes, and say, look at how we've gotten this much further. The, the hope of looking at the violent creation of the planet on which we live and its ultimate establishment with the oxygen and, 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 the, and the oxygenated atmosphere in which we live, the air we breathe, the way this particular planet has set up and, and, and that we're still looking for others like it. The fact that that can be the result of otherwise what would seem to be violent, random acts that would never, ever result in anything uh, positive or anything uh, viable taking place, that has to give us some hope for the future as well. We have to imagine a future evolving in a positive way as well. That's, that's how the founding fathers of this country imagined it. That's why they basically went with a constitutional democracy. 
That's why they envisioned all the things they did. They didn't, they did it in a less, it was a, to form a more perfect union, they didn't have a more perfect union at the time. They were going for it. It was the enlightenment. They figured these things were possible. They knew where they'd come from and they imagined that something better could happen. They didn't do it in a perfect atmosphere. It wasn't already in place. It takes a while to screw things up and then have to undo them. It takes a while to put 300 million guns on the street. And basically you don't snap your fingers and undo it. You, you, you evolve out of bad situations. You do it step by step. You re-embrace progressivism. You re-embrace the notion that basically we can argue and fight our way to a compromise that will move us in a positive direction. And that compromise is not tantamount to extinction for one side or the other. Both sides are strengthened. All sides are strengthened by giving up something that will then result in a gain for everyone. We are, we are, we've lost that mindset right now. The notion that compromise can lead to improvement. We can, we can imagine it, we can, we can hear it in our minds, we can hear, we can hear the statement of it uh, coming from, uh, you know, from our textbooks and, and, and wise people and probably dial up something on YouTube or Google some speech that would remind us about this. But our day-to-day -day feelings don't bring this up instantly. And so we have to all kind of find our own Big Bang Theater to give us this notion of perspective, to take us way back before any of this came together, to understand that how, how just how messed up, apparently, things can be and still come together the way we are right now, and to also imagine, hopefully, hopingly, that it can come together in the other direction going forward. Because the past is nothing but a string of little futures that have gone on a different, that are in a different point on the time spectrum, time, space-time spectrum. So all those futures that are now receding, receding futures, that's the past. And we are now walking into the next set of futures. And there's no reason to assume that we can't reach something better because we're humans and because we have will, we can inject that into the process rather than just being passive observers of 13.8 billion years, give or take a few million for Homo sapiens existence. It's, it's something we have to do we have to take some kind of hope out of both the evolutionary process that got us here and the implications for future betterment that come from a recognition of how far our lineage extends. 13.8 billion years. And we can change and we will change. 
And what we're looking at right now, Trumpism and all the temporary little things, the, 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 the insanity of, of where we appear to be, this is temporary. But we have to make some commitments to get past it. We have to get, to get better, we have to want to get better. We can't just walk away and say, let this happen on its own. We're, we're past that period. We are no longer, we, we are not permitted to step back. We cannot, we cannot be that non-committal. We cannot be Jansenistic about this. Well, it's gonna happen, whatever, whatever's gonna happen is gonna happen, so it doesn't matter what I do. No, everything matters about what we do. And we have to recognize that in the darkest, darkest of times, we have movies, we have shows, we have songs that remind us of this again and again and again and again and again. That at the darkest of moments, there is light out there. There's something to be gotten. And we will eventually be looking back and saying, oh, look at how we handled this. And we got past it. The question is, how will we get to the next level? And how far out do we have to look before it does get better? How bad do we feel we have to make things in order to recognize that things are better when they eventually are? You know, you, 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 you don't know good until you've known bad. You don't know pain until you've known happiness and you know, sorrow, joy, blah, 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 blah. Okay, life and the life, uh, things are antitheses. But how much pain do we have to give ourselves before we allow ourselves a sense of happiness? I mean, I could, get into, I could get into Buddhism here for, we could go into a whole Buddhist segment here. I'm, I'm, I'm simply making a suggestion. Find your own Big Bang Theater. Attend it in your mind, if nothing else. Find a ritual like that that gives you the ability to recognize that things evolve over time. And once you've observed that, understand that things evolve in the future as well over time, except that now we have the element of human will and hope that can be injected into the developmental process going forward. It may not seem that way on many days. We may, it may be much too big. It may feel much too big. It's too overwhelming. No. No. If we believe and enough people believe and if enough people are willing to commit to a notion of hope and positive change and to basically step back from a sense of zero-summing the other side because of fear, and that's all it comes down to, of course. Then the period when we'll be able to look back and say, look at where we were and look at how we got out of it, it'll come that much quicker. It can come very slowly. Things can get a hell of a lot worse. Oh, no doubt about it. But they can get better. That's the point. We must will for things to get better. And it helps to have a ritual to float into, to pop into, that helps us remember that. For me, 
It's the Big Bang Theater. I can't get there every day, obviously, but I know it's there, and I can play it in my mind almost the entire show. I can hear the music. I could hear Liam Neeson. I could hear his narration. I, I could feel myself walking uh, in the museum. I, it's been part of me since I was six years old, maybe five, I forget. It means that much. Please, to get you through this period, and we'll get back to the specific politics again, you know, in another day or so. Find yourself a Big Bang Theater. If you're in New York, for God's sake, come to the Museum of Natural History, the American Museum of Natural History. Go to the Big Bang Theater and see what I'm talking about, if you have that option, if you're in the area. But if not, find the equivalent in ritual that gives you the ability to recognize that from the worst situations, we have come into far better, and therefore, with the force of will and a belief in one another and a belief that things can get better, we'll make them better. That it's not all hopeless. That we cannot write one another off. We cannot simply say they have no chance. No. We don't have the right because they, because they may think that way. We can't. We must think positively. We must express that to them. Because some of them will listen. Whoever the them is. We can't give up. It'll get better eventually. But how bad do we need it to get first? before we finally let better happen. Draw a line, draw the line now. Won't be easy. It'll sound pretty stupid, given how the newscasts run and what we hear every day, you know, but maybe today is the day it starts to get just a little better. Because enough of us believe it can, because enough of us have found our own Big Bang Theater. Yeah. A little jazz.
This is Richard Gazer. You know, it takes lots of time and effort and all kinds of resources to produce the kind of quality program we produce here at Center Left Radio. And it costs money to do it. Now, if we screamed a little louder or thought a little less about what we were saying, we could probably get a few advertisers to pay us to sell their products to a more tribally predictable audience. But that's not who we are or who you are. You come to Center Left Radio for non-commercial, thoughtful commentary. You're looking for an honest, progressive approach to solving America's problems, not exacerbating them. And we're committed to providing all of that. We're one of the few stations offering full-time, non-commercial, progressive programming. And we're the only station, the only one, doing it with a combination of hope, politics, and that most eloquent of all original American art forms, jazz. Think of it this way. We support your needs. Now we're asking you to support ours. Take a moment and go to our website, www.centerlefttalkradio, one word, centerlefttalkradio.com, and go to the donate page. And when you get there, give whatever you can. On a one-time or maybe a recurring basis, $5, $10, $1,000, whatever you can contribute to make center-left radio's unique progressive voice stronger and even more significant as the full extent of the wrongdoing of Donald Trump and his associates becomes all the more evident. And as we seek to hold the House Democrats accountable for the promises they made to the American people during the last election. Yeah, you know what's at stake. And I know, we all know, we can count on you. On behalf of all of us at Central F Radio, thank you. You've been listening to Center Left Radio, the progressive voice of hope, politics, and jazz. My name is Richard Gazer, and thank you once again for being part of today's show. We use ritual as a mechanism for establishing our perspective about things, how we feel about stuff. I use the Big Bang Theater at the American Museum of Natural History to give me a sense of how out of the worst and craziest of things, good stuff can happen. And we can do that to imagine the future, but only if we want to.